This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of the Trades Affiliates. So we're going to be talking with Jay Jacobs, who's the head of research and strategy for Global X ETF. Jay, team does a lot of really interesting work on thematic investing, growth strategies, and his team is out with a brand new report on disruptive growth and technologies for the future. Jay, welcome to Behind the Markets. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeremy. So let's talk a little bit about your latest report. Well, I guess you guys focus a lot on growth investing, but but talk through the exercise your team just did and some of the sort of high-level summary points of, of what you're focused on. Absolutely. So we just put out a report called Charting Disruption, and it's effectively a chart book for all the different powerful themes that we see uh, emerging in 2022 and beyond. Um, You know, in the world today, we're obviously exiting, well, hopefully exiting this pandemic soon, and the world is trying to kind of restart on a new track going forward. And the economy has completely changed over the last 18 months with you know, everything you've been talking about on this show, we don't have to rehash all of them, but we have supply chain issues, we have inflation, we have changing consumers that have adopted digital technologies, the rise of cryptocurrencies. So as we exit this pandemic, I think we're going to fully realize these inflection points in the economy. And our work on the research side on thematic investing is trying to anticipate those changes that we'll see over the next several years. So right now, the Fed and inflation and, you know, the growth stocks have come under some pressure as there's recently. Um, do you have a sense how much of that is the Fed? How much of that is the sort of quote unquote reopening trade and just market rotation from growth stay at home to reopening names? What, what's your sense of what's happening and, and the outlook for sort of high growth where you talk about the charging disruption type stocks going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I think it's a little bit of column A, column B. I mean, certainly interest rates and the expectations for the Fed will influence things that uh, are expected to not generate a ton of cash flows until several years down the road, which is, you know, several of the disruptive themes that we track. Um, You know, think about something like uh, blockchain developers right now, not a very profitable industry, but something that's growing very quickly. So if you're trying to value that, that's going to have, you know, kind of more long duration characteristics than, say, an industrial company that's selling widgets at a nice profit margin, right? So technology stocks have certainly come under pressure from Fed actions. Um, there's certainly a sentiment to the market as well, and people are trying to play reopening versus reclosing, I guess we could call it, if Omicron becomes a, a, a pressure point going forward. So there's people that are using some of these themes like cloud computing or e-commerce as ways to kind of play whether the economy is, is trending towards opening or, or, or closing again. But I, I guess just to kind of dispel a, a myth, a lot of people um, uh, kind of view thematic investing as completely analogous to growth or technology investing. And the reality is that several themes actually are not tech stocks, um, and they can be somewhat older parts of the economy. 
they're just benefiting from changing structural developments that are suddenly finding, you know, new value in old things. Um, you know, let's look at an, uh, infrastructure, for instance. Infrastructure is not a particularly growthy part of the market, usually. Uh, these are materials companies. These are construction engineering companies. They can be transportation companies. Not getting the highest valuations, not going to be, you know, probably meme stocks anytime soon. But when you have a $550 billion package to invest in infrastructure, suddenly that becomes a pretty growthy uh, part of the market. So uh, we're not just looking at the growth areas of the market. We're looking at, you know, in many in some cases, value parts of the market that have potential to flip to growth because of structural trends. If you were to go to the growth segments and, and you think about valuations, how they've evolved through the pandemic, is there a a segment of the mega growth areas that you're you think have have either been that are still where the growth rates are the most you know long lasting and 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 how you think about the the overall valuations i mean obviously the the fastest growth tends to command the highest valuations but any any places that you think sort of a relative opportunity amongst the the mega growth stocks yeah absolutely so you know one way that we like to look at this is is thinking about the adoption curve and the adoption curve is basically an s shaped curve where further to the the bottom left of that s you have brand new technologies that are just trying to get uh, off their feet and they can experience very high growth rates off of a very low base but they're not proven so it's higher risk higher reward uh, if you go to the upper right-hand side of that S-curve, you have much more established technologies that are, in many cases, even becoming profitable already, but they've experienced a lot of that really high growth period. So, you know, just to use two examples, I would put genomics at the lower left end of that uh, S-shaped pattern. It's it's basically brand new. We're just experimenting with how mRNA-based technology can address certain ailments. At the other end of the S curve is something like social media. The theme, you know, Facebook has been around for, you know, north of 15 years now. Um, it's not new. It's not, it's not sneaking up on anybody. But the question at that end of the curve is really how much more growth is, is uh, coming ahead. I actually think where a lot of value is right now is the themes that are further to the right side of the S curve. Those more established themes in some ways are kind of becoming underrated, uh, that people believe that maybe social media companies are going to start slowing down in growth, or even e-commerce companies are going to start slowing down in growth. Both of those themes are still turning out double-digit growth rates, usually in the range of 15 to 20% revenue growth year after year. It's not the time to be bored with these themes just because they've been around for a long time. And, um, you know, I guess another piece that we look at is how do themes reinvent themselves? How do they continue to maintain that growth? And social media is a great example. Um, basically, everyone has a social media account. For 84% of U.S. adults have a social media account. So they're not growing by adding more users on Facebook right now. Uh, where they're growing is monetizing those users more effectively. And that's where you see hyper-targeted advertising, embedded videos, and more importantly now where you're seeing basically social media companies becoming e-commerce companies with the advent of social commerce. So they've done a end end. Uh, of course, the shift to the metaverse and uh, their involvement in, in kind of the creation of, of the next generation of the Internet. So these companies have done a really nice job of constantly kind of refilling their growth and finding new areas where they can leverage their expertise to maintain very high growth rates. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one where, where Facebook is no longer Facebook. We got the metaverse. Um, as, as, as you think about that metaverse and that the adoption of that, is it mostly a virtual reality? I mean, how do you think about the metaverse um, itself? Is it a blockchain story? Is it a gaming story? 
is it just Facebook story? What the metaverse story? What what what, what do you think? It's a little bit of everything, and it's a lot of these technologies kind of smashing together to create something that, frankly, we've never really seen or experienced before. I mean, I think the easiest way for people to visualize the metaverse in their head is to think about video games, and, and in a lot of cases, video games kind of created that uh, online presence where you can be with other people. You have an avatar, whether that's you know a, a warrior in Call of Duty or a soccer player in FIFA, but you know you're kind of playing as an avatar in a live present world. In a lot of ways, the metaverse will kind of build on top of that uh, and create, you know, worlds that expand far beyond gaming. But there's, of course, the blockchain piece because you can own pieces of the metaverse digitally. You can trade goods and services within the metaverse using cryptocurrencies. And, uh, of course, you have the social media, you know, AR, VR component that Facebook is, is leading in as well. So it's uh, it, it's kind of an amazing theme of themes that's converging. Um, what I would say is it's, you know, if you think about that S-shaped adoption, the metaverse is far to the bottom left of that S-curve, right? Very few people are really participating in what the metaverse is expected to become uh, right now. Um, so as you think about kind of the, the risk reward of the metaverse, um, it's going to be plotting much more like genomics than more traditional social media. Let me reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Jay Jacobs, who's the head of research and strategy at GlobalX, about his new report, Charting Disruption. Um, Jay, when you talked about the opportunities for the social media companies like like a Meta um, or maybe Twitter and others to become more business, like you think about what country where they already doing that. You think China. Now, China has been one that has come way under pressure of sort of the big tech, um, probably one of the most disappointing segments of the market this year. Do you see what is your conversation with clients about China tech in particular? Do you think that is one of the places where valuations have come down enough, uh, or is people is China such a negative topic nobody wants any China tech at the moment? It's it's difficult. I mean, you're you're obviously going to have the people who uh, see this as new and sort of unexpected risk, and you're going to see people who view this as a buying opportunity and and picking up uh, you know tech companies for for uh, cents on the dollar here. I think the broader challenge is you know you try to price things using fundamentals, but then you introduce a completely unknown risk to the equation, which is what is the government going to do? And it's very hard for people to sit in the United States, you know, halfway across the world and try to anticipate really what the impact of Chinese government regulation is going to be on Chinese internet companies, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough leap, even if you have, you know, on the ground presence uh, within China. Um, rather than trying to kind of look at it as all or nothing, I think it's, it's interesting to look at the different segments in China and how they've fared. Um, you know, if you look at 2021, particularly Chinese internet or software companies listed in the United States have really fared horribly. Uh, but other segments within Chinese technology stocks have done just fine. Uh, if, for instance, hardware companies that are li primarily listed in China, these could be semiconductor producers, this could be uh, PC manufacturers, cell phone manufacturers, they've held up just fine. They have not been uh, um, you know, uh, very much in the crosshairs of these regulations. So um, it's uh, it, there's aspects of the market that are a little bit more insulated than others, um, and you know simply investors understanding the risks of what segments that are getting exposure to, I think, is important here. Yeah, the um, it, it's definitely one of those. I, I from some of the flows data that I track, I mean, it seems that people have been more buyers than sellers. So it's interesting that as, as even though they've gone down, it seems like people 
Now, you don't know, is any of that being used for shorting? But even the short interest rate data says that it's gone up, but that there's been people buying the dip. So it's interesting just to track what, what's, what's happening there. Um, and, and we'll see if that continues into next year. If, it, if, if any of those regulations turn around, that, that is one of the higher growth areas, but, but certainly come under a lot of valuation pressure. Let me come back to the genomics thing that you said as the as the far left of the S-curve. That, those stocks did incredibly well with the vaccines and then have, I guess, would you say just the expectation got very, very high and now they sort of reprice a little bit. Is anything in, in that segment that you're particularly excited about for the future or, or just, just the potential of how these new vaccines are shaping how we're doing medicine is going to be game-changing for so many different areas. I mean, I would say it's kind of the, the latter. I mean, in a lot of ways, we don't we don't know yet. We know that this is a revolutionary technology. We're not exactly sure how revolutionary and in what areas it will be revolutionary. Um, you know, if anything, I, I almost equate uh, mRNA-based uh, vaccines and treatments as like a new asset class of, of pharmaceuticals. You know, it didn't exist. It basically didn't exist before the pandemic. I mean, people were doing research on it, but, uh, uh, you know, regulators were very hesitant to approve any projects uh, and any treatments. Uh, Funding for it was much more limited. And then it's used in an emergency capacity. And all of a sudden people realize, oh, this thing works. And now how can we use it? Can we use it to treat uh, multiple sclerosis? Can we use it to treat Lyme's disease? Can we use it to treat HIV uh, or Alzheimer's. There's a lot of diseases out there where mRNA tech, uh, uh, approaches uh, look pretty promising right now. And uh, I think we're still in the very exploratory phase of it. And, you know, just like a, a far bottom left theme should be, you know, we don't know exactly what monetization of this looks like. But if you look at the total addressable market, uh, it is enormous. And, you know, frankly, within genomics, the only segment that's really been at all kind of monetized and, and used is, is genetic testing. I mean, just think of, you know, 23andMe, it's been around for quite a few years. A lot of people have done it already. So that's, that's kind of the furthest ahead piece of genomics, but that is a relatively minor part of the market compared to all the drugs that could be developed in the future um, using these techniques. One of the, uh, an anecdote I heard uh, actually just this week at dinner one night was somebody, um, Professor Siegel actually was sitting at dinner with one of the, uh, the vaccine companies, a uh, CEO of one of the vaccine companies involved, and they made a claim. I, I, I guess the flu vaccines typically are something like 50% effective, and part of the issue is that as as you you're, you have to develop it so far ahead of time, like 10 months ahead of actually deploying it, so they don't know what strains will be wildly circulating. But his contention was that in the short future, we'll have flu vaccines that are 98% effective that, you know, how how much the flu, you know, kills, you know, 50,000 people a year or something like that. And and you get now the question is, will the governments allow them to release these updated vaccines as quickly as they can develop them? Because they could have it out in two days, basically. So some of it is like, will they change the laws to allow these companies to do what they can do? It's, it's a really good question. And, you know, with any big theme, there's always going to be that regulatory component. And, you know, certainly in the medical space, that's, uh, that's a big piece of it. But I think we, we, we burst through the big barrier here, which was, can we, you know, use mRNA-based vaccines? The answer is now yes. So, you know, how do we use this in different ways going forward, I think is, is the, really, uh, the really exciting part going forward. And, you know, even what we're just talking about now is still broad-based techniques, right? Rolling out a flu shot to 350 million people in the United States 
we haven't even gotten to personalized genetic medicine, which is, um, you know, basically uh, customizing a drug for a unique individual. Because right now, you know, you go to the doctor and you have an ailment. They say, how old are you, male, female? Do you live in New York? You know, basic questions to try to figure out kind of an overall biological composition of what you are. In the future, they're going to be using 230 different genomic, uh, uh, you know, gene markers to determine what is the right drug to give this person. So that is going to be a huge shift going forward and should overall increase the efficacy of basically any drugs going forward. Well, that's, that is one of the, the very exciting things of of the where we are today and what what is what do we learn from the pandemic that's one of the things to be optimistic about for our future um as you think about other major topics you sort of talked about we talked about crypto a little bit tied to the metaverse but as you think about the blockchain and i think on the s curve we'd agree that's sort of pretty far left not i mean it's somewhat early stages on what are the executions of all these blockchains how do you see companies developing around the blockchain where do you see what what's your sense of crypto is it a bubble what's your sense yeah it's so i think we have to kind of distinguish between two different groups there's the there's the crypto side of of the blockchain theme and then there's the kind of other use cases of blockchain beyond crypto um, crypto, of course, has seen, you know, really strong adoption. There's a, you know, a lot of stats out there that, you know, most people coming into crypto, you know, 50% of people coming into crypto came in in the last year. Uh, we've obviously seen, you know, the rise of total crypto market cap to at one point peak over $3 trillion. I think it's back down to around two or, or between two and two and a half right now. But the adoption of crypto has certainly been very quick and, and, and very meaningful that segment alone could continue to grow uh, pretty substantially. Um, we've done a lot of survey work to understand, you know, where do people think crypto fits in a portfolio? How much would they allocate to it? And the, you know, the kind of predominant belief at this point um, is that crypto is an alternative and it's an alternative that could get somewhere between zero and 10% of a portfolio. And if you just extrapolate that number to the wealth in the world, you get a pretty phenomenal amount. You get a total addressable market of about $47 trillion for crypto. So if you if you just use pretty basic math there, you can understand we're still in the very early days of adoption of crypto. Now, even earlier than that is, you know, the, the other use cases of blockchain technology. So using blockchain to secure supply chains, um, you know, using blockchain technology uh, for health uh, medical records, uh, going back to genomics, how you share medical records, who has access to it, who has the ability to edit it. Um, there's a lot of these other use cases. They basically had no adoption yet or, or, or very little monetization. Uh, but if you look at some of the biggest companies in the world right now, a lot of them, and uh, you know, talking to people anecdotally, a lot of them do have some analysis of how they could use blockchain technology going forward. That doesn't mean it's been implemented. That doesn't mean someone's necessarily making money off of it right now. Uh, but it's at least a strategic consideration at major pharmaceutical companies and healthcare providers, major considerations for consumer goods companies that care a lot about supply chain integrity. So that, I, I mean, that is as far bottom left of the S-curve as you can get. We've talked about a number of different themes so far. Let's talk about how you think people use these type of strategies that we're talking about today, like how do they build it into a portfolio? How should they think about it? You mentioned early on, or is it, does it, themes don't always have to be mega growth. There could be like infrastructure, but how does GlobalX think about solutions um, for packaging these things together or how they should be used in a portfolio context? 
Absolutely. There, there, there's really two different approaches that I would say are most common. The, the first and maybe the um, relatively simplest is that you have the core of your portfolio, which is probably going to be relatively broad, inexpensive beta exposure to, uh, to indexes. And then you complement that with a satellite position in thematics. And that satellite position, you know, it's going to depend on the investor and how much overall equity exposure they have in a portfolio. But let's assume this is a long-term growth-oriented investor. You know, they could be allocating 10 to 20% of their portfolio to a thematic bucket where they're allocating to three to five themes and looking for diversification across those themes by names, by geographies, by sectors, however you want to cut diversification, but really thinking kind of meaningfully about what are those themes they're putting in that bucket and realizing that this is going to be a long-term buy and hold part of their portfolio. The other approach, which maybe is a little bit more kind of integrating themes into a portfolio, so not carving it out as a satellite, but integrating it into kind of the broader portfolio is um, sector replacement. So if you have certain sector exposures within your portfolio, it's reducing traditional sectors and replacing it with the theme that is most closely tied to it, or what I would like to think of as disrupting that sector. So if you have a broad industrial sector um, and you're not happy with the exposure in it or the growth expectations of, of that part of your portfolio, you could reduce industrial sector exposure and replace it with something like robotics, which is going to have a lot of industrial robotics companies in it. Or you could replace it with infrastructure, which has a lot of construction engineering companies. That way you still kind of maintain similar overall sector exposures within your portfolio, but you're getting much more precise about what you have within those sectors and targeting the more growthy areas of them. Well, this has been great. Where can people find your charting disruption book? That's easy. It's chartingdisruption.com. Very good. And for following along, Jay, um, any other places they can find your, your notes and research? Absolutely. Uh, we can follow me at jjacobcfa at Twitter, uh, or you can always visit us online, globalxetfs.com slash research. A lot of interesting stuff, Jay. It's been a great conversation. I think these mega trends are are a mega trend itself. So it's uh, it's it's great been talking to you. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.